From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Dominican Father Brian Milady. And Father Brian, I've got my St. Dominic socks on today just for you. Oh, good. Yes, well. Now, I have a favor to ask of you. Can I sit at your right hand for the remainder of the show? <laughs> if it, whatever turns you on. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to talk about such a request, huh, a it's, little bit. It's, yes, it's uh, very Californian to say something like that. Um, yeah, as you know, we had the, the feast day of St. James this week, and we also have the gospel of uh, the sons of Zebedee. And what I've always found very interesting about this gospel is that it is preluded by the Lord making reference to his passion. Yet for some odd reason, not only the apostles, but also uh, the mother of the two sons of Zebedee, they, they, they don't even talk about that. They talk about uh, precedence, who gets precedence. And, uh, you know, it goes to show you also that Things haven't changed that much in a thousand years because in the original canonization process, the first one was really Thomas Becketts, and the papal nuncio came to England to do it, and the Archbishop of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury were fighting to see who'd be the primate. So if you sat at the right hand of the uh, papal nuncio, you were automatically said, said to be the primate. So the Archbishop of Canterbury ran up and sat down. So where did the Archbishop of York sit? He sat on his lap. <laughs> and I thought, things really haven't changed that much in a thousand years. <clears throat> you know, the mother, she, now she's ambitious for her kids, obviously. And she says, you know, well, Forget about this passion thing. Can my boys be the first in the kingdom? And so Christ, kind of in a way, I think ironically, says, well, yeah, if you can drink the chalice I'm going to drink of. And they enthusiastically reply, oh, we can, we can. 
And Jesus says, well, okay, as for the chalice I drink of, you will drink of it. Um, but as for sitting in my right or left hand, that's determined by my Father. And, of course, the chalice here refers to suffering, pain, detachment, and that. They don't know it, though. They, they, they identify the chalice with something very different. So then, of course, our Lord gives them a lesson about authority. And he says, among the Gentiles, there's a lot of competition to see who's going to be first. But when it comes to you, remember the first among you is the one who's the servant of all. And in the uh, St. Thomas, he talks about the origin of authority in society. And he asks, and this is very much a Protestant notion, if the reason we have authority is because of sin. And he says, well, historic, according to the scriptures, that was what we call the occasional cause. But actually, even if there had been no sin, there would still need to be authority. Because when you get, let's say, 12 human wills all trying to act together, there has to be somebody to put in charge. I always use the example of rowing a boat. I mean, you have six on one side, six on the other side, all with oars. And if you just say, okay, everybody just row like they want, where they want. Well, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Because <laughs> everybody's going to be on, on their own thing. So the reason is because if we need to act in concert, we need someone to, you could say, well, in the rowing, call the time or determine the direction or, or something silly and innocuous like that. The difference would have been before the sin, we would have always chosen the most virtuous person to do it. But after the sin such is not always, or even sometimes often, the case. So, in our lesson about today, what precedence consists in, it persists in being, uh, consists in being a servant of all, not the boss. To serve the common good, that's the most important thing. And the reason the superior or the person in charge has such great difficulty is that they can't just carry out what they need or what they want. They have to ask what the common good of the society is, why the people are participating in it, and uh, determine what the laws and the enforcement will be based on that. Now, unfortunately, I think we've witnessed in our culture abdication of authority regarding truth. I mean, there are people who want to run the place, but they don't want to think about it and don't want to have to deal with a higher law. And instead, we have the higher law, which is God's will, which is the commandments, which is all those things that are given to us in the scriptures concerning what we should determine as truth or not truth to bind the conscience. And if people think that just because you vote on something means that's true, 
and that's a better way to do authority. Well, St. Thomas also asked in one place, what was the most perfect government? And he said, well, if you consider the way God governs the universe and we're imitating him, monarchy's the most perfect government. But the problem is that because it only takes one person in a monarchy to be corrupted, <laughs> and because of original sin, we're often corrupted, the best form is a combination of what we call the three forms, which would be monarchy, uh, oligarchy, which in our case would be the Senate and the House, and then um, democracy, which would be also... Uh, in some sense direct, but not absolutely direct in the sense that people define democracy as people voting to determine the truth and acting accordingly. They have a higher law they have to pay attention to also. And I always enjoyed Pope Benedict's statement that when he was made Pope, they said, well, you're going to do away with the monarchical papacy now? and have a fraternal papacy. And that's basically what the apostles were supposed to be. And these two brothers. Well, you'll notice, as soon as the mother tries to get a special place for her boys, all the apostles dissolve in arguing about who's going to run the place, too. And Pope Benedict's response was, well, just remember what the first two brothers did to each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Cain and Abel. Yeah. So, yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you... Straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. 833-288-3986. couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. We know that most of you are dealing with the summer heat around the country right now, so we're bringing you Christmas in July at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Uh, one of the items they have for the offing is a kneeling Santa ornament. A precious kneeling Santa shows Santa on bended knee before the baby Jesus who rests in a manger. A lamb joins Santa in adoration, reminding us that even as the world grows more and more commercial during the holy seasons of Advent and Christmas, 
Jesus is the real reason for the season. It's made of a resin stone mix, and it stands two and a half inches tall, and it's ready to hang right on your Christmas tree come, uh, well, the day after Thanksgiving for some of us. Uh, normally $17, but if you shop early, the Christmas in July price is just $9.99, and it's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. To the phones we go. First up is Oliver in the great state of Michigan listening on Holy Family Radio. Oliver, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. How are you today? Fine. Good. Um, I told a call screener that I inherited a uh, a copy of the so-called Jerusalem Bible. I'm just eager to know if that's a legitimate translation or should I burn it? Yes, it's considered to be legitimate. However, it's a translation from French. So the it's a language that where the original biblical languages were filtered through French because of the École Biblique being a place where they, in those days especially, uh, they spoke French. And it was an attempt to, well, it wasn't so much a modernization of the Bible, but to make a more popular translation. Uh, they say, when I was in seminary, I learned, and I have actually found this translation generally, to be quite good, that the best translation for Catholics is the Revised Standard Catholic Edition. Uh, it's hard to come by now. In the 60s, it was quite prevalent for study purposes. But um, it's from the original languages. Uh, now, of course, Douay, you can also do a Douay, but again, that's filtered through Latin. So it's a, it's a credible translation. It was used in the liturgy for centuries. But it's just not the same as the original languages, the which is the source language. So uh, no, don't burn it. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little even superstitious about throwing Bibles away. It reminds me of Treasure Island, you know, the novel where which one of you just cut a Bible like that <laughs> because the the black spot is put on a page of the Bible. And, even the pirates are superstitious about that. But, uh, yeah, the, the Jerusalem Bible is, is fine. It's not the best scholarly translation, but it's a credible translation. And please don't burn it. God bless you, Oliver. We appreciate that phone call today. Sure. This frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Next up is Thomas, a first-time caller in the great state of Ohio, watching us on YouTube today. Thomas, you are on with Dr. Uh, Doctor, how am I doing? With Father Brian Milady. Hello. Um, Father, my question is, uh, could you give advice uh, for or against in uh, interpreting the Psalms, uh, turning to rabbinic sources, uh, Hasidism, or even Maimonides, uh, would, would this be misleading to a Catholic? Uh, I don't think so, but it is of the fullness of what the Psalm means. Uh, but it's um, something that people have done since 
you know, our Lord came. The Psalms, after all, were the prayer book of Israel. And so much of what's written about the Psalms, even in the rabbinic literature, it correctly reflects why they were written. Now, Christianity might give a little more full explanation of that, because especially, well, Augustine, I believe, says in one place that all the Psalms in one way or another are about Christ. So to see the Psalms specifically um, relating to what we believe about Christ and is sometimes difficult to do. And there are some people that would not really be able to do it. But yeah, the rabbinical tradition helps us understand, especially during our Lord's time, what they were interested in. And as for Maimonides, of course, he's medieval, basically. But um, he... Uh, had some very marvelous insights, although he was somewhat wrong about his relationship of faith to reason. He was very interested in pursuing it. So I think a person could use Maimonides also, not so much as the definitive interpretation of the psalm, but as um, an attempt by Hebrew source, especially in the Middle Ages, to come to terms with what was uh, the content of the psalm. It, it, not so much as applied to Christ, because they don't believe in Christ, but as applied to the Messiah, for instance. Thanks so much. We appreciate that call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 Wide open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls. Ellen called in earlier, Father, and she says, Is there a history of Marian apparitions in Protestantism, and why or why not? I don't believe there is. However, Luther loved the Blessed Virgin. And even though it conflicted, contradicted, his ideas about grace... He still kept his devotion till he died to the Blessed Virgin. So it, it certainly isn't inimical to Protestantism as such, but the difficulty is for many Protestants it's never been explained to them. And sometimes when it is explained, they don't listen. Like I remember I gave a course once, uh, a lecture really in an Episcopal church, on the Catholic idea of Mary. And after what I had given, what I thought was a masterful explanation of how you can be a spouse and a virgin at the same time, I asked if there were any questions. And one of the Protestant parishioners raised their hand and said, so then you think marriage is evil, right? And I said, who, who, who? Who in this room heard me say the marriage? Where's your hand? Did I ever say that? No. But that's what they hear. Because we espouse virginity, too. Also, I had a friend who was an evangelical. And uh, he said, what's this Mary thing you people believe in? And I said, well, you believe in literal interpretation of Scripture, right? Oh, yeah. And I said, so the Bible... 
Christianity. Oh, yeah. And I said, and if you found it literally in the Bible, would you believe it? Oh, yeah. And I said, well, it says in the Bible, all generations will call me blessed. And that's all we're doing. And he thought for a minute, and he said, gee, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I said, yeah, we're not worshiping Mary as a goddess. She's certainly not a rival to the Holy Trinity or to Christ. But she points to them to us, and she's the first and most perfect member of our church who's merely a human being. So... 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Jenny, a first-time caller in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio's app. Jenny, you're on with Father Milady. Good afternoon, Father. Um, I have a few friends who have recently joined um, some religious orders, um, and I was wondering um, why they're communication is restricted to friends and family. They can only receive letters, and um, I know the number of letters they're allowed to write um, per month or season is limited, so I was wondering why that is. Okay, that's a good question, and uh, not all orders are like that, but there are some, and there are two reasons for that. The first is because, well, as you know, especially with religious women, although not exclusively with religious women, but all they'd be getting is letters from their former boyfriends wanting to know why they didn't come out. <laughs> or from their parents, oh, we don't want you in there, you're being imprisoned in a convent, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I've heard more stories about this than I can count. The second thing is, you know, when I was a novice, we were ordered to write to our parents. I think it was every month at least, because he didn't want people to think that they were totally cut off. However, we weren't allowed to seal the envelope, and we had to leave it in his box, because he retained the right to read the mail, see. Now, you may think, well, that's a big invasion of my privacy. Well, yes, it's true in a secular level. But what they were concerned about was, again, people who were writing crazy stuff. And also, people will try, like if there's a, widow, a dispute about a will, they'll try to enlist you on both sides. And you don't have any stake in the will because you don't have any possessions. But they want you to get involved with this or you to get involved with that. Or I even had one fellow, um, I had inherited a house that was very poorly maintained. And it was my great aunt's house, really. And I was last in the will. And uh, so um, they wanted me to sign it over to them for uh, a dollar. And I said, no, my mother was disowned from that inheritance. It's hers. And, of course, at my final vows, I made a will where any expected income or patrimony or property I got from my family, I had to give to the community. Or, uh, well, give away. You didn't have to give it to the community, but you had to give it away. 
And so I had uh, earmarked her to receive this to try to correct this injustice. So that's that's the re. Uh, yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Rose Marie. She is a first-time caller in Billings, Montana, listening on Billings Catholic Radio. Rose Marie, you're on with Father Brian Mullaney. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Thank you, both of you. Father, last week you said, when someone asked about the mystery of evil, you said that there is social evil and there is individual evil. Well, I choke. I told, I told your, the, the man who answered, I choke whenever I try to uh, forgive, when we're told to forgive, when you see the, the culture and, and then the faces of the perpetrators or whatever, if they're so obvious, you know. I don't know how to pray. I I don't know if I'm obligated or even or only God can forgive can forgive social sin. Would you please tell me what to do, and I will obey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I don't think you. I was the one that talked to you about that, frankly. Last time I uh, had a problem with the computer, and it, we only got through half the program. Also, um, yeah, we played the we played the second half of a previous program, and that's probably oh, right. that's what happened. Uh, well, uh, yeah, the catechism makes a distinction between the two, and the real evil, of course, is individual evil. That's the one that sends you to hell. You know, social evil is. Things not being as they should be and people suffering because of it. Especially regarding the economy or something like that. Uh, you, you can't forgive a society. It's not a person, you know. You're, but you are called upon to make Christ's prayer, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do for the people who are perpetrating such evil. So uh, uh, forgiveness is the last resort of someone who can't change something. And, of course, it's very difficult for us to change social evil because we're not involved in the government except by voting. And it's, all, and it's very hard to change someone else's individual evil, too, if they don't want to be changed. So you have two choices, then. You can hold on to your anger and let it merge, you know, fester in you. And you only have so much spiritual energy, and it takes up all the energy that could be given to appreciate good things to um, try to deal with this uh, evil that you can't change. And the Christian response is for our health, 
not to allow evil people to have uh, power over us by constantly giving us occasion to be upset, but instead to just pass on and move on to the next thing when you can't really, really change it. And uh, doctor, my friend Dr. Bars, he's of course dead, I never met him personally, but he was in a concentration camp and he was kept alive by his anger at his captors. But he said, you know, that's not the really Christian response. He says it's, it's a, not a bad response, but it's not the depth of the Christian response. We're told to forgive as we've been forgiven. And so he said the companion to what I experienced is Maximilian Kolbe's response, which, remember, was to take the place of the person who was being executed um, by this very, very tyrannical and unjust system. And also, we, uh, we talked last week about the martyrs. I talked about the martyrs of Compiègne, who are very famous, the Carmelite nuns during the French Revolution that offered their lives. They were condemned to death. And there's a famous opera by Poulenc called The Dialogue of the Carmelites, where they're brought to the place of execution and the crowd usually was full of bloodlust. The crowd was absolutely silent when they were brought there. And they each mounted the scaffold to be guillotined. And as each one did, they knelt down and asked for permission to die from the mother, genera, or the mother prioress. And then they sang. And there's a debate about whether it was Salve Regina or Veni Creator Spiritus. But they sang on the way to the scaffold. And there was a bunch of other nuns from England imprisoned with them who eventually repatriated to England. And they told these nuns that they were offering their lives for the end of the persecution of the reign of terror of Robespierre. And one week later, Robespierre fell. So um, there are many, many different responses to evil. The worst one is to constantly carry it in you and let it fester in you and destroy your own peace and your own soul. If you can change something, you try. If you offer forgiveness or plead uh, forgiveness, the person won't forgive you. You can't change them. It's not about manipulating them to change you. Instead, you can change your own response and say, look, I'm wasting my time doing this. It's, uh, what do they call insanity? Having the same behavior over and over again, thinking it'll make me different this time, the outcome. And it's not. And you can say, look, the outcome's always the same. I'm not doing this person any you know, harm to get them to correct themselves. And I'm certainly not doing myself any good. So the best thing is to just forgive the offense and move on, unless an opportunity offers itself. For you know, anger's purpose is to correct evil, where we know we can correct the evil involved. God bless you, Rosemary. There's some good advice for you.
uh, we will keep you in our prayers as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. William is in Livonia, Michigan, watching us on YouTube. William, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, Father. I think um, a few years ago I read some information. I don't know if it's based in truth or not, that there was a Masonic infiltration of the Vatican in the late 1800s and maybe going to the early 1900s. Uh, have you heard of this, and what about its veracity? Well, I've heard of it, but not at that time. Um, the popes were very alarmed at the present time about the number of Masons, avowed Masons in the Curia. And uh, it began around the 50s, and it's really reached a great deal of fruit now. But whether or not how much influence they have over what happens in the world is a, is a, moot, a moot point, a debatable point. Because the Masonic order is always secret, number one. And number two, uh, the Christian faithful are just not going to give in to Freemasonry. And uh, the, the Masons are quite powerful in Italy, and they're quite anti-clerical. And like the United States, they're looked upon here as people, service organization that basically builds swimming pools of war kids. But that's not true in Europe. In Europe, they have a definitely anti uh religious, and especially anti-Catholic side to them. Um, I, I know about this partially because I, I lived there for a number of years, and I have been told and witnessed <coughs> what I would consider to be some Masonic influence of the Masonic order. But how much there is of it, I don't know. Uh, religiously, politically, you know, they had a huge drug bust in Italy in the 80s, the Carabinieri in Sicily, and they found all the drugs in the basement, the Grand Lodge of the Masons in uh, Palermo. So uh, it's a quite different organization in Europe than it is here. And uh, it does, unfortunately, apparently, and I have it on fairly good authority for many sources. Unfortunately, there is, I don't know, I, I use the word conspiracy, but the way it was put to be by someone who lived at the Vatican for many years was that Paul VI was a very good but very naive person, and he thought the best way to make peace with the Masonic Order was to bring them inside the city, <laughs> you know, in the Trojan horse, in a way. And unfortunately, he's the one that got burned and not the Masons. But uh, there were a number of cardinals when I lived in Rome who was pretty, people were pretty open about the fact that they were, they were Freemasons. But, uh, God bless you, William. Thanks for the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Thomas, a first-time caller in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Thomas, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Yes, hello, Father. Hi. So um, I was debating this Protestant pastor online 
about how I believe that the Holy Eucharist is actually Jesus Christ's body and blood, and obviously he didn't believe that. So I was trying to pull from Scripture and other sources about to prove that, and he basically was dismissing that. So I was wondering how you would go about proving that um, the Holy Eucharist is actually Jesus Christ's body and blood. Well, I'll tell you how Martin Luther went about it. <laughs> he had a great debate with Zwingli about the real presence. And Zwingli, who was a Swiss reformer, held for um, symbolic presence that just meant Christ. And Luther walked up to the chalkboard and wrote, Hoc est enim corpus meum. This is my body in Latin, and he underlined it like that. That's how he did it. Now, of course, he didn't believe the Mass is a sacrifice. It's one of the reasons why they don't really have a priesthood, and that's part of their problem. And remember, Luther's theory of the Eucharist was odd because he held for consubstantiation, which is it was one and the same time, the body of Christ and bread. And it was only the body of Christ, what they used to call in Uzu, which in Latin means while you're celebrating the Eucharist. But after that, it reverted to being common bread and wine. But that was how he, he answered it. And uh, he didn't really believe in it totally. So um, uh, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. But the thing is, you can use all these arguments arguments you want and they've been developing contrary arguments for 400 years so uh, there was a great movie made on the life of Lady Jane Grey who was a, who was a serious Protestant I mean she was a, a, a devout woman but had calling into Protestantism in England and there was a Jesuit who tried to convert her back and he kept saying, this is my body. And she'd say, well, he also says, I am a door. Is he also a door? Uh, you know, they had these arguments where they um, uh, had learned what to say to try to answer this. But it's pr very clear in Scripture that the Jews think that Christ is claiming for us to eat his flesh because for one thing in the famous discourse on the bread of life and what is it John chapter 6 I'm not like I can't cite scripture texts like Protestants do but um, they pick up stones to throw at him because they accuse him of um, blasphemy saying that you should eat his flesh and drink his blood because remember that was the one thing that the law forbade it forbade eating flesh and drinking blood of animals and things like that. Thanks so much, Thomas. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. A whole lot happening at this year's EWTN free family celebration. Join us Saturday, August 26th. Right here in Birmingham, Alabama, you can enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and television hosts. You can shop at EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass, and be part of a televised program. Today's activities culminate with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. 
Simply go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration to find out more and to register, and it is all free. Next up is Tim, a first-time caller in Seattle, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Tim, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Uh, hi, Father. Thank you. Um, I read an article one time about uh, it was like a Reader's Digest kind of thing. It said uh, what not to say to somebody who's uh, had a loss. And uh, the end of that article was basically the best thing to do or say would be to just um, offer your time if they needed anything, you know, like to help them do something. What would be your recommendation? Well, you mean like someone died in your in another person's family and things. Correct. Um, I, I think for the most part, you don't want to beat them over the head with the religion, that's for sure, because it's not the time or the place. Um, you don't want to beat them over the head with theology either, because it's not the time or the place. But a sympathetic presence, is it's true, is probably the most important response until the person themselves is interested in talking. And once they become interested in talking, then you should have certain arguments, like for the death, you have the resurrection of the dead, you have the consolation of purgatory and heaven, um, what we're here for, uh, the resurrection and how important it is for the final fulfillment of our human personhood. Um, all those things. God bless you, Tim. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you. We could probably squeeze in another call or two at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Bill writes in, if I'm a believer... Should I be completely unafraid of death? Well, it depends on what you mean by fear of death. I had a very holy sister friend who was suffering a bone cancer. And when she found out she had it, she said, Well, I have for many years looked forward to going to heaven. It's dying I don't fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because it's going to be painful. and uh, um, But she says, I've learned to trust him. And she said, to be honest, I don't believe I'm going to die soon. And she didn't. She suffered for three years from it. But in his time, because one of the sisters had said to her, one of the upfront sisters said, just how long have you got to live anyway? Has the doctor told you? <laughs> and she said, well, her very abrupt way of asking me about my death. <laughs> was something I found strange. But she said I had to laugh because um, I, it's if I ask the doctor that question, how long do I have to live? It would be very different from the way our Lord and I have always related to each other. Because I've always just relied upon him to let me know. I will know the time and I will know when, when it will happen. But it's up to him to prepare all that. And I don't need to question it. So, 
Uh, got an email from David. It says, can you explain why Jesus says Mary is not his mother, but that every person who keeps the word of God is his brother or mother? Well, to my knowledge, let's see if I can remember the quote. I'm not sure he doesn't say he's not my mother. Obviously, she is his mother. But he simply puts fatherhood and motherhood and family relations on a more spiritual level. And he wants to say that everyone who experiences grace is his uh, close relative, in a sense. So Mary, obviously, is the mother after the flesh. She's obviously the first of believers, too. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes people have taken that text as belittling Mary. Well, it's just the opposite. I mean, who... Who's closer to him spiritually than she is? So she's the mother par excellence. And eventually, as John will show us in the cross, in Christ with John, she's the mother of us all through St. John when he hands her to St. John and St. John to her. Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. But um, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, what person on earth better heard the word of God and kept it than the Blessed Virgin? So that's he's emphasizing the spiritual nature of things and not just the uh, legal nature according to this earth. Kate would like to know if people secluded from the knowledge of Christ have a chance for salvation. Oh yeah. Um, through what's called invincible ignorance. Um, God never condemns those who do what they're able to do. So everyone, in a sense, has to believe in Christ, but it can be in a very implicit way. In other words, not clear, implicit way. So Paul is very clear in the Epistle of the Romans. He says there are two things you have to believe to be saved. One is that God exists, and the other is that he awards evil and punishes, uh, uh, um, awards good and punishes evil. And uh, that would, in Catholic ways of thinking, from the time of the sin, we have the implicit prophecy of the Messiah. And for everyone who believes implicitly even and they're not able to change their belief by their own wills because they can't know this it's impossible for them to know this then they're saved but they can't be atheists unfortunately there was a whole school of thought in the 60s and some German German theologians uh, in which they basically held that you could be an atheist and a Christian at the same time which is absolutely impossible you can't deny the existence of God and also believe in him. So um, uh, you have to have certain basic beliefs. And they include implicitly the whole of the creed as it becomes revealed throughout time and space. Caitlin would like to know, is our obligation to forgive based on the person repenting? Or are we obligated to forgive unconditionally? 
I would say we're obligated to forgive by the example of our Lord and by the fact that anger exists to support good, to correct evildoers, and that the attempt to, well, you have to show forgiveness to them too, as Christ does then, but um, not, not them necessarily, because it doesn't really matter whether they receive your forgiveness or not, or even your apology or not. That's manipulating them. That's up to them. They're, they're free to do that or not. But you're not free because you know you have a certain obligation to do these things in Christianity. Whether they accept it or not, that's their business. But your business is what your response is to be. And Andrew wants to know if you could tell him the meaning of the commandment to honor your father and mother. Uh, the meaning of that commandment is to realize that everyone has to be treated with respect, beginning with our parents. But any authority figure has to be treated with respect because they've given you a gift that you couldn't give yourself. Uh, teachers, for uh, parents that give you the gift of life, you can't give that back. And the, sec the fourth commandment of about honoring your parents is an implementation of what was called the virtue of piety in the ancient world. And the virtue of piety was an attempt to repay God for all we'd receive from him. But obviously we can't repay God by strict uh, reckoning of justice. So we do it proportionately. In other words, we offer our um, apology or forgiveness. But then God has a huge part to play in it being accepted or not. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.